good morning. Uh, two quick things. First of all, if you would remember to pray for the Barnes family. John lost his mother, I believe it was late last night or early this morning. If you would please remember them. And then secondly, we rescheduled our membership meeting. It was supposed to take place just a week or so ago. Um, a stomach flu hit the cow in the household, and I thought it'd be best I not go and, and try to lead a group of people through a membership meeting. I ended up not getting it. Melissa and Landry both got it, but I didn't get it, so praise the Lord. Um, so we'll reschedule that. We're going to have that on February 2nd. It'll be from 9 a.m. to noon. If you're interested in going to that, you can contact the church office and let them know. And I really hope you would consider going. There is absolutely no pressure to join the church uh, at this uh, membership meeting. We're just going to talk about uh, what it means to be a member. I think there's a lot of confusion about church membership. Why do we even have church membership? What do we believe? And a few of the specifics and a little history about First Baptist. So if you would, please consider going to that. That's February 2nd from 9 to noon. You can just let the church office know about that. Well, there were a group of men who were trapped 2,000 feet below the Earth's surface for 69 days. 33 men. This happened in 2010. You may have heard the story. That happened in Chile. And these men were there in total darkness during that time. They had a few lamps. But down there in all that blackness, underneath the earth, they thought that they were coming face to face with their own deaths. And it made, us, made them start calling some things into question. How they'd been living. Is there a God? Do we need to start praying to God? Not only did they start praying to God, they actually started confessing their sins to each other. And in that gloom, they all turned to a guy by the name of Jose Henriquez. And he was a Christian. They said, well, would you please pray for everyone? And he did. And as he got down on his knees, some of the other men joined him. They started confessing their sins. They started saying, Lord, we aren't the best men. Please have pity on us. Then they got more specific. A guy named Victor Segovia prayed, uh, God, forgive me for drinking too much. A guy named Victor Zamora said, Lord, I'm too quick to anger. And a guy named Pedro Cortez would pray that um, uh, he would be a better father to his daughter if he would ever get out of this mind. Nobody objected. And it was the beginning of something very special. This transformative community was starting to form right down there in the deep darkness of that mind. So they were confessing their sins, and they went beyond that. They would start confessing to God for being, being too violent, using drugs. Even things like, I'm sorry I didn't help get the water. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to them, there was a rescue effort that started taking place up on the surface. So they were drilling down, drilling down, and eventually they broke through. And as they formed a little crevice there, not big enough for anyone to pass through yet, they started getting supplies to them, food and water and iPads even. And here's where the ironic piece comes in. As light, start, physical light started coming down into that abandoned mind, down in that caved-in mind, the spiritual light that had been kindled there started to grow dim. Because here's what happened. They started realizing that they were famous. They started realizing that they may even get rich when they got to the surface. And when those things started happening, when rescue started to look like it was going to come, they stopped the prayers. 
They stopped the confessions. They stopped the sermon that they were having every day. And there's the ironic piece that as the physical light came in, a spiritual darkness came into that mind as well. And we live in a spiritually dark world. We live in a world where people may worship a God of riches and fame. And we're seeing a drift happen. Many of you saw it this past week. You saw a new abortion bill pass in New York. And perhaps what was troubling was the celebration that went along with that. And it wasn't just that. This past week, uh, we saw the vice president's wife come under fire. She's a Christian school teacher for teaching at a school that didn't support the LGBTQ agenda. And actually, a new hashtag started. A hashtag expose Christian schools. So there is a growing persecution. I even watched a show this morning uh, on one of the news programs where they're interviewing a Christian leader, a Jewish leader, and a Muslim leader, and they all agreed that Christian persecution is starting to increase. You see, there's a darkness out there, a moral darkness. It's a spiritually confusing time to live in. And truthfully, it's been that way. It's been that way ever since sin came into the world. We've been living in a dark world. And then I get to Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. And what does Paul call us to? He calls us to shine as lights in a dark world. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to answer this question. How do we shine like lights in a world that's full of spiritual darkness? And we'll be in Philippians chapter 2. We'll actually be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Uh, Philippians 2, 11 through 18. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm sorry, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I would be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. So this morning we're going to walk through these verses. And we'll actually camp out for a little while on verses 12 and 13 because they've caused a lot of confusion, I think, among us. What does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? What is the Lord telling us here? So we'll walk down through this, and we'll look at three ways. We'll talk about three ways to shine as lights in this world. Three ways to shine as lights in this world. So when we step into this passage, one of the very first things we see is we land on this word, therefore. Now, if you've ever been in any kind of, like, inductive Bible study class, you know that when you see the word, therefore, you ask this question, well, what is the therefore? Oh, you guys are good. <laughs> What is the therefore, therefore? 
So it always connects it to something that happened previously, and, and in this case, it's connecting to the previous section uh, that we talked about last week. So we saw last week that Christ was exalted. We saw that he had emptied himself. We saw him becoming man. And we also see this charge from Paul that we are to have the mind of Christ. So we peered into the mind of Christ, and we were unpacking what that meant. And we saw that Jesus showed great restraint we saw that he laid down any sense of entitlement that he had, and he patiently awaited for the Lord to exalt him. We saw those three things. So because all of that is true, Paul now moves on. And we see him, he endearingly, he endearingly refers to these Philippians as my beloved. He'd had a connection with them. Uh, previously in the book of Acts 16, we see him going to Philippi, and he builds relationships. So he does have a strong relationship with them. And he says, as you have always obeyed, so now. Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's commending them. He's saying, good job. He's also saying, don't get lazy. And it's worth mentioning here, you know, when we are obedient to any authority that God has placed in our lives, we obey as unto God. So you may have a great boss, you may have a crummy boss, but we obey them as though we are obeying the Lord. Same way with government. We obey government as we are obeying the Lord because we trust that God has put them where they are and he has his own reasons for doing what he does. So whether someone's watching us or not watching us, we obey. Same with parents, right? We obey our parents. We may not always agree, but we obey as we are obeying the Lord. So... That's what's going on there. Then he gets to this last part where he says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what are we talking about here? Uh, this is a command. This is an imperative. And it's a difficult passage. I think that's kind of befuddled a lot of us somewhere along the way. As a matter of fact, whenever I was in college, I remember... Uh, confiding in a campus pastor that I really was struggling with an assurance of my salvation. Like, I, I was really struggling. Well, am I really saved? And by the way, I, I know there's people here that are struggling with this. I, that it's very common to struggle with an assurance of your salvation. Well, he directed me to this passage. And he's kind of like, well, that's normal. You know, you should kind of be working out whether or not you're saved with fear and trembling. I thought, well, this is really, <laughs> this is pretty unsettling. I mean, the fear and trembling is already there. I really don't have to be commanded to do it. And by the way, I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. I don't believe that we're being instructed to kind of, you know, re-wringing our hands with anxiety. Oh, am I really saved? Am I really not saved? I don't think that's what's happening here um, at all. But then you've got to ask the question, well, what then is the intent of this verse? What are we being told to do here exactly? And it's helpful for us to look back again at the previous verses. Christ has been exalted. Uh, and, and he's been exalted on high. And we are told to follow that example. We are to have this mind of Christ so that we too will someday be highly exalted. Uh, now, one thing we can be sure of is that Paul is definitely not saying that we work for our salvation. I think he's made that very plain in, in many of his writings, not just in the book of Philippians, but we see it uh, in chapter 1, verse 28. He's speaking to Philippians, talking about unbelievers as something being, this is a sign of their destruction. But then he says, but of your salvation, it's from where? 
It's salvation is from God. We don't save ourselves. God's the one that does all the saving. And in another verse, Ephesians 2, 8, he makes it clear as well. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So we can be, be certain that Paul is not saying that you work for your salvation. It's a gift. And then keep in mind, who is this letter addressed to? And we see it in the very first verse. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So Paul doesn't have uh, any doubts about the salvation of the Philippians. He's making it very clear. He's calling them saints. That is to say that they are believers. So it's not as though he's talking about working out whether or not you're actually saved. That's not going on here. So then the question is, well, what are you saying, Paul? This is what he's saying. Your salvation is not just something that you have received. Your salvation is something that you do. You have received salvation, so start living out your salvation. Remember, he's going to say in the first chapter, you are citizens of heaven, so live like citizens of heaven. There have been some issues popping up in this church. There have been some divisions. That's why all the talk about unity. There was some selfishness and some infighting. There's two folks, uh, we'll see them in Leaf chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche, I believe is how you pronounce their names. And there was a dispute. So Paul's saying, work out, live out your salvation. And how are we to live out our salvation? He says to do it with fear and trembling. Now, why with fear and trembling? Honestly, I read that and it's like, well, I could do without the fear and trembling, you know? When I think about salvation, I think about peace and joy and eternity. So why then this phrase, uh, fear and trembling? Now again, why was the therefore there? What was it there for? We've got to look back. What happened at the end of the previous section? We see Jesus exalted. And then what? Ultimately, every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see Jesus given all power, all supremacy to whether any intelligent being, whether they be on heaven or in hell or uh, on earth, they are going to bow and confess Christ is Lord. That is our God, the creator, the one who's holding all the universe together in the person of Jesus Christ. This is someone who deserves our utmost respect and our reverential fear. Yes, he loves us, and we love him as best we can, but do not ever treat him lightly. You know, it's interesting uh, when you see angels appearing in the scriptures to people, the first words almost every time out of their mouth are, are is, is fear not. People are freaking out when they show up. Well, just fear not. And at times, people have been tempted to worship angels. Why is that? They've, they've never encountered a being like this, giving off light, this holy being, this angelic being. And the, the angel actually at times has to stop them and say, don't worship me. 
And you know what I think about? I think that angel's almost saying, you haven't seen anything yet. If you're tempted to worship me, wait till you see the one who actually deserves your worship. I once heard a, a story from a teacher trying to give her students a sense of awe of, of God and of Christ. And she said, she said this, let's reduce the space between the earth and the sun. It's about 93 million miles. Let's just reduce it to the thickness of a piece of paper. Okay? So condensing that down, that 93 million miles down to the sheet of paper, she said this. She said, if that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And then she said, and the diameter across the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And on top of that, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. And then she asked her class a question. She said, now, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? When we meditate about who God is, we should be filled with awe. Have you ever seen and, and witnessed something that produced in you a sense of awe? Maybe it was the Grand Canyon. Maybe it was Niagara Falls. Maybe it was uh, those big horns when, they're, when the sun's coming up. Something that left you awestruck. If you're a child of the 80s, we threw around that word awesome all the time. It was awesome this and awesome that. Well, that should be a word that we really reserve for something that truly is awesome and awe-filling. Do we have that attitude toward God? Or have we become sort of casual and complacent? You know, I have to say, whenever I was a kid, we got really dressed up when we went to church. Anybody else? Am I the only one that, like, when you were growing up, that you were... So, I, I was talking to a guy in the first service, and he confirmed that. I just want to make sure that Wyoming was some kind of special place where they didn't do that. Turns out that was not the case. Yeah, we, we got really dressed up. Now, why did we do that? We did that out of reverence for God. At least that was the intent. Now we're more casual now. And frankly, I like the fact that we're more casual now, that we usually exchange one problem for another. The problem with that was a lot of people felt excluded because they couldn't get dressed up and come, or people excluded others because they didn't dress the same way they did. So believe me, I'm not knocking the casualness. The danger is... We can become casual with God, and we do not want to become casual with God. So we have to be on guard against that. So then, how do we begin to shine like lights in the way that Paul is talking about? Well, first of all, by standing in awe of God, meditating on who he is, his awesomeness, his power, his creative power. Frankly, that seems like an almost impossible task. All of these things seem like an impossible task. Working out my salvation with, with fear and trembling before this holy God. So how do we do this? Well, we get to verse 13. How do we do it? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this is good news. We've got a command to work out our salvation. Fortunately... It is God who is empowering to do this. Not just empowering to do this, 
but even giving us the desire to do this. Do you know that had God not given you the desire to please him, there would be nothing in you that naturally would want to do that? We wouldn't be able to do anything good if, not the, Holy, if the Holy Spirit were not working his ministry on us, giving us the power to do it. The will and the working. Now, the good news of that, maybe it's, well, kind of the bad news of that is you can't take credit for anything you do that's good. Because it's God that's doing it. Now, you can get stuck in this trap of trying to figure out, well, okay, well, if it's God that's doing it, why don't I just kind of like go sit on a log or something? I mean, if it's God that's empowering me and willing me and making me do it, then, then maybe I don't really play a part in this thing. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That's not the way this thing works. Because you were given a command, you were given a responsibility to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. At the same time, God is coming in and said, I am completely empowering you to do this. And this causes one of those Christian tensions. Well, is it 50% God and 50% me? Nope. It's 100% God. It's 100% you. It's 100, 100. And if you try to break it down in any other way, you're going to land in the wrong spot. People have tried to, and they landed in the wrong spot. Usually you become a heretic. Don't do that. In the same way that God inspired the writing of the scriptures. When you go through the scriptures, you can tell these are people with different personalities. God uses 100% of the person in the inspiration and writing of the scriptures. At the same time, it is 100% from him. In a similar way, Jesus was 100% man. He was 100% God. It's 100-100. So yes, we can't do anything good apart from God, but yes, we are doing. It's 100% us. At the same time, it's 100% God. There's, there's some mystery to this, and we don't want to skirt around it. Well, what next? Now we get on a tough one. This is a tough verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Ooh, what? There it is. It's not a misprint. By the way, there's no exception clauses in this, right? I'm going through this. Well, well wait a second. What about the job that I have? What about the parents that I have? What about the kids that I have? What about the spouse that I have? What about the car that I have that's always breaking down and I can't get it fixed? What about what? There's no exception clauses. There's no escape clauses in this passage. It says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. This isn't the first time that Paul has made this command. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he says something very similar. Don't grumble. And if you look back in the Old Testament, Numbers 14, you see those Israelites tired of traipsing around, start grumbling whenever they get the report from these spies that had gone into this land that God said he was going to give them, but they come back, 12 of them, 10 of them said, forget it. We're like grasshoppers compared to these people. What's he do? He strikes those 10 with a plague, and he makes the entire nation wander in the wilderness for 40 years. God is not going to put up with it. He's just not. Grumbling against him, and he knows better than we do everything that we're going through. He knows. He knows what you're facing. 
what I'm facing. Individually, as a family, as a community, as a country, he knows. And Romans 8 is still true. That he's working all things out for that which is good for those who love him. If anyone would have had cause to complain, it probably would have been a woman by the name of Corey Tenboom. If you're, if you're familiar with Corey Tenboom, uh, she and her, her sister were in a Nazi concentration camp called Ravensbrück. And they were able to smuggle a, a Bible in there. And they would hold these Bible studies. But the problem with that concentration, there are a lot of problems. One of them was it was absolutely infested with fleas. And it made them absolutely miserable. But they were still miraculously able to have these Bible studies. And they came across uh, some scripture that said to be thankful in all things. And Corey Tinboom was like, I cannot be thankful for these fleas. Her sister said, I'm going to be thankful even for the fleas. And eventually, Corey Tinboom came around and said, okay, we'll thank God for the fleas. Over time, over months, they kept having these Bible studies. They kept seeing these women come to faith in Christ. And what was noticeably absent were the prison cards. Who would typically have come in and stopped that. They would have assaulted the women. But they found out that the reason that the guards weren't coming in there was because of the fleas. They were staying out. And they were able to keep doing what they were doing because of the fleas. You know, I think every single day, on any given day, you and I have the opportunity to complain about something. When you are tempted, think about the fleas. Whatever misery it could be, and some of you have been done wrong by people, Think about those fleas. Somehow, God in his sovereignty is using this situation. Because it's challenging not to grumble and not to complain. So, secondly, how do we shine as a light by not complaining, not grumbling? This is so, such the mark of a Christian. It, it takes divine enablement to be able to do this. Okay? This is one of those things we do that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. So we're also, in this passage, we'll keep moving down, uh, we're called to be blameless. That is, to be living in such a way that no one can make an accusation against you. This, is, this means we, we get along, we do what we can to get along with our neighbors. We're also called to be pure. That word pure in Greek has to do with undiluted wine or a, a metal that's not been corrupted in any way and has stayed strong. And then Paul said, you're living in a crooked and twisted generation. Now, not much has changed in 2,000 years. I brought it up before. We saw that celebration in New York City about this more lenient, it seems, abortion bill that was passed. But this is the world we're called to live in. As children, as lights. And God has put us here sovereignly at this time and in this place. And people should be drawn to this community. They should be drawn to this church by the love that we have for them, by the joy and the peace that we have. This is about being a light in the darkness, in the world that we're living in. It's something that people should be drawn to. And if we go back in history, if we look about the early church, and we understand that under severe persecution, Christianity spread like wildfire. As a matter of fact, before there was any media, before there was any internet, 
that message got out and ultimately evangelized, Christianized pretty much all of Europe, Eastern uh, Asia, and, and Northern Africa. Now, some men just wrote a book called The Way Back, a guy by the name of uh, Cook and Bach, and they were meditating, well, why, how was it this early church was able to do this? And this is what they said. Why did the early church succeed where we are failing? How did they transform the Western world in such a relatively short time? They did it because they did things that baffled the Romans. The early church didn't picket, they didn't boycott, and they didn't gripe about what was going on in their culture. They just did things that astonished the Romans. They took in their abandoned babies, they helped their sick and wounded, they restored dignity to the slaves, they were willing to die for what they believed. After a while, their actions so softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about who these Christians were and who was the God they represented. That's how it was done. They showed a tremendous love to the people among whom they were planted. That doesn't mean it's, it's easy. You know, from time to time, I, uh, I, I ask people out in the community, I'll take them to lunch, people who don't go to church here, and I'll say, what do you think of First Baptist? What have you heard? What's our reputation out there? Are you interested in what they had to say? You want? Maybe it's because I'm the pastor or, or the lead pastor, but I've not gotten a single bad report. So I want to commend you for that. Let's keep it up. Let's keep doing the good we know we, we ought to do. You know, it's very easy. It's very easy to simply stop with the condemnation of something like abortion. But we need to go beyond that. Did you, did you hear what the Christians did in the early church? They took in the abandoned babies. Are we pointing young, terrified women to resources available to them instead of having an abortion? Are we loving them well? Are we discipling young men to say, you know what, you have a responsibility here. You have a child now that you need to take care of. I'm very thankful that we have a pregnancy care center here in our community that helps women in this, that are stuck in this place. I'm thankful we can be a part of that. We're called to be lights in the darkness. Then we get to verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So what does this mean to hold fast to this, this light, this word of life? That phrase could be translated holding out. As a matter of fact, this Greek word they would use, uh, it would be a word you would use at a banquet to hand a drink to someone. You would hold it out to them. Because it almost sounds like you're holding it to yourself. You know, I'm not holding it fast. I don't want anybody to have it. No. It's holding it out. Holding out this word of life. And what is that word of life? Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to be holding it out. Making it known. This actually looks back to uh, Daniel 12, 3. It says, but the wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse. And those bringing many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. We're to hold it out. We don't keep it in. But let's be honest, this is not an easy thing to do. 
It's countercultural. We're in a culture that's increasingly trying to silence us. And I love what David Platt wrote. He actually wrote this at the end of his book, um, Counterculture. He said this. He said, are we going to follow Jesus? Not are we going to bow our heads, say a prayer, read the Bible, go to church, and give a tithe while we get on with the rest of our lives. But are we going to follow Jesus with all our lives, no matter where he leads us to go? How countercultural the task is, or what the cost may be for us, our families, and our churches. In order to answer that central question, I'm compelled to ask these three corresponding questions. Are we going to choose comfort or the cross? Are we going to settle for maintenance or sacrifice for mission? And finally, will our lives be marked by indecisive minds or undivided hearts? That's really the choice in front of us. Are we going to be countercultural? It's not easy, but we are called to get the gospel out there. So third, uh, shine his light in the world by sharing the gospel, by getting it out. And then we move down to the very end. Um, we get to verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Easy thing to read, hard thing to consider. Paul's looking down the barrel of his own martyrdom, and he says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. I've poured myself out, not unlike in the Old Testament, they would pour out a drink offering to the Lord. He said, my life is poured out to you. And then he says, likewise, you also. He knows there's suffering. He knows persecution's coming. You should be glad and rejoice with me. So putting that all together, we're to shine as a light in the world by standing in awe of God. Not getting casual, not getting complacent, not complaining. Remember the fleas. And finally, sharing the gospel. Holding fast that word of life and getting it out there. I want to close um, with, it's, it's a true story about a, a Navy pilot. actually ended up being a, an astronaut. But in 1954, this Navy pilot, he took off from his aircraft carrier and almost immediately... Uh, everything went dark in the cockpit. And I've talked to pilots uh, who have undergone this experience, and they said it's one of the most terrifying things you can imagine. Right after a cat shot off the end of a carrier, everything just going black inside the cockpit because you're immediately traveling away from the place where you want to land, and you've got nothing in the cockpit that's guiding you to get there. So that's what happened. He's flying along. His name is Lovell, and he's flying his plane Gradually, his eyes got adjusted to the darkness. And then he tilted the plane and looked behind him, and there was a strange phenomenon going on in the ocean. You may have seen this before, that there's a little jellyfish that when boat engines churn it up, they actually start to glow. I've seen this happen uh, in the Chesapeake Bay before. So when his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he circled around, and he caught this very faint light down below him, and he knew what it was. And he knew that the boat engines on that carrier had churned up these jellyfish to create this light. And he said, he knew all I had to do was follow that light, and it was going to guide me back to the aircraft carrier. You and I have no idea what kind of darkness the people around us and our jobs and our neighborhoods are living in every day. But you know, as they get 
adjusted to that darkness. If their eyes can see the darkness they're in, you may be the light that can guide them back to the Savior. Let's pray together. Almighty God, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to live for you in, in the short amount of time that you've given us to do it. Lord, I pray that we would. I pray that, God, that we would follow you with a reckless abandon, that we would make you known, that we would live as lights, that we wouldn't hide, that we wouldn't try to dim the light that is in us, that we would make it known, that people would know us by our love. God, give us the courage as a community of believers to do this. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thank you very much, and please, if you can, stick around for the business meeting.